I'll just remind you guys that we are in the book of Genesis. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis this spring. Yes, we're in the spring. Uh, And last week we talked about Noah. Noah and the flood, and we talked about how when we come to stories like the flood, sometimes even in particular the flood, uh, it can kind of strain our belief. It's a story that can feel really far afield uh, from our daily lives and kind of hard to wrap our minds and our hearts around. So some of what we talked about last week was essentially the, the moral perspective on what was happening at the flood. Acknowledging that left to ourselves, what we at first kind of read in this story can seem at least problematic, if not highly objectionable to us. But as we studied the scripture last week, what we saw is that really what was on display is God's love. That God's love against a world that had turned against itself that was full of violence, that in response to that, that God was sad and that he was patient, but that eventually uh, God's response to violence has to be judgment. That that flows out of his love, his desire to protect and care for his creation that he says is good. And yet in the midst of that judgment, what we also saw is that there was mercy. That God had mercy on Noah, his family, and even the whole of creation. So even if we can kind of get our hearts and our minds around, maybe even a little bit more kind of the the morality of what was happening in the flood, uh, can we just acknowledge that there's also some factual barriers there for some of us? Does anyone connect with that at all? Okay. I want to address that for a minute. And talk about the fact, and talk about how we kind of hold miraculous stories like this in our minds and in our hearts as we engage with Scripture. And the place that we have to start is in uh, and with God's character. That what we believe as Christians is that God exists. Maybe that's self-evident, but let's just clarify that, okay? We believe that God exists, that God is good, and that our God is true, that that's part of his nature, that there's no falseness in God, that God, in the way that he acts, in the way that he is, in the way that he speaks, what he is always doing is true. In fact, truth is measured against how it stacks up against God because God himself is the standard by which we know what is true. And because that's who God is, then when God speaks and acts in the world, when he reveals himself in the world, he only does it in ways that are true. So when we read that Jesus Christ came to earth, that he was God's word made flesh, that everything that Jesus revealed about God is true. And all of God's work in the world, all of his acts and redemptive history are true. And the record of those acts that we have in God's word is true. And it's true not only because it's a record of those acts, but the word itself is true. Because what scripture claims about itself is that it's breathed out by God. And since that's true, it has to be true. Are you with me so far? Okay. So that's our doctrine of scripture. That's how we hold on to scripture. And the same God who has inspired his word, who has sent us his revelation most fully through Jesus Christ, is also the God who stands behind all of creation. It's the same God. It's that same God who brought order out of chaos. That same God who made our world something that is comprehensible and gave us minds to comprehend the world. And we accept those things as as givens. I will just tell you that if you do a deep dive into the world of philosophy, not everybody accepts that, okay? That like cause and effect are real things that exist in the world. People question that. 
But for most of us in the world that we live in, and we live in the world and we say, okay, this world is comprehensible and I believe in my ability to comprehend it. And, and that's because what we don't often acknowledge, but what is true is that our God who is true stands behind that. A God who brings order out of chaos, which means that when we encounter things in the world, we come to scientific conclusions when we use our reason, that we're, we're doing something that, that worships God because we're engaging with his mindset in the way that he made this world. You with me so far? Okay. So God is true in the way he reveals himself in his word, and he's, he's true in the way that he reveals himself in the world. Scripture even speaks to that in Psalm 19. It says, the heavens declare your handiwork, that, that when we are out in creation, it's testifying to who God is. Now, sometimes, in our limited understanding of both the Scriptures and the world, it can seem like those things don't fit together. That we look at the special revelation of God through his word and we look at the, and the, the natural revelation of God given out in creation and we can bump up against them and feel like they don't actually fit together. Have you guys ever experienced that? Okay. Of course. Of course that's true. Because we as humans are finite. We have limited understanding. And beyond that, we are, we are hopelessly bound in our cultural moment and stuck with our own biases, aren't we? God knows that. In the midst of that, God is communicating to us what is true. And yet, those things can shape both the way that we understand the world and the way that we understand science. Because the people who are doing all of the, I don't, we talk about science like it's all experiments. You guys, we have scientists in the room. You know how it goes, right? That those people also have all of their own biases and, and preconceived ideas. They have all of their own faith that they bring to the work that they do, even if their faith is to think that other people's faith is silly. That's true about all of the work that's happening around us all the time. And so, of course, there are going to be times and ways that these things don't seem to line up all the way. Like, for example, reading this story, I talked about this a little bit last week, this idea of a worldwide flood. Uh, as I was kind of in the story studying it, one of the things I kind of came across was people talking about how it's possible to be faithful to the Scriptures and also believe that this is a regional flood. It says that God, God covered the whole... The, all of the earth with waters is the way we read it in the ESV. That same phrase, it pops up a little bit later in Genesis, same author, right? Genesis 41, 57, talking about this, this famine that took place in the land of Egypt. And in that verse, it says that all the earth came to buy grain from Joseph. Same phrase. Now, do we think that means, do, wow. There is no Bible commentator who thinks that means the Aztecs were rowing across the Atlantic Ocean to come and buy food from Joseph in Egypt, right? We know that that language that's being used there has a poetic element to it, even though it is communicating a historical fact, because that's the way we tell stories, y'all, right? Same thing. That word for earth, when we think earth, we think of a globe. Okay, that is not what the authors of Scripture were thinking about. The same word, it's the same word for land. All the land was covered in water. Okay, now suddenly, that gives us a little bit of a different perspective in the way that we understand and interpret even the scripture of the flood. Now, in no, let, me, let me be very clear. In no way are we trying to back away from the truthfulness of scripture. We believe God's word. I, I hope you hear that in our teaching all the time, that we believe God's word is true. And yet, our understanding of how we interpret it and how that fits with the world, those things are always changing. And so what I want to invite you into this morning is to live in some of the question marks of seeing faith and reason come together. 
trusting that God stands behind them. Because what we are always tempted to do is to try to harmonize those things and make them fit when they don't fit in our moment. We know that they fit. We have faith that they fit big picture, but we can't always make them do that. That's okay. We can trust that God is doing that, that God has done that. And the invitation for us is to live with some of those question marks because here's the thing, guys. Those question marks never go away in the Christian faith. That usually what happens the longer you walk with Jesus is you just get more of them. But what we learn to do in the midst of those is to hang on to what we know is true in the midst of all the questions. So that, that's what I want to invite you into in this story as we continue kind of in the journey of Genesis and as we do this thing called walking with Jesus together that we would be a people who, who have absolute confidence in God's desire to reveal himself to us. And because of that, are willing to, to stand up with each other in the midst of our questions and, and ask God to reveal himself. Sound good? Okay, so now we're going to actually talk about the scripture. Okay, so Savannah is going to come up. And Savannah is our reader for us this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 8 and work our way through uh, a part of Genesis 9 also. Guys, I've had people ask me, why don't we just have the readers stand down there and read? Because the walk up here like takes a, a few seconds. What I want you to see visually, no, 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 you're good. Come on, no, come on up, come on up, come on up. No, you're good. No, what I want you guys to see each Sunday is that God's word is the center of what we do here. And that it's not my words, but our authority, oh, I guess it's the baptism, who knows? <laughs> that our authority is God's word. And that I want to see you, I want you to see it read out of the Bible every week to know that it is this whole story that we have put our faith in. And that it has center place here in our service because that is the way that God expresses his authority over our lives. Okay, now you can go. All right. Um, Genesis 8, 18 through 9, 17. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. 
as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and I'll remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Savannah. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, we trust that it is true. Uh, Lord, for those of us, maybe you are here this morning who have little faith in that, we pray that you would make that little faith, uh, that you would do something with it, that you would move mountains with it, Lord, and that you would move in our own hearts this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have three points I want to cover this morning. From this passage, we're going to talk about creation, we're going to talk about covenant, and we're going to talk about calling. So that's pretty good alliteration, if I do say so myself, okay? Creation, covenant, and calling is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And what I, what I want us to, to spend some time on here in the, in the beginning of this is acknowledging God's care for his creation. God's care for his creation. And that has been kind of a subtext of so many of the passages that have led up to this moment in Genesis, but we haven't actually taken time here in the service to talk about it. And y'all, we got to talk about it. That God cares for his creation. And that's, that's something that's easy at times for us to miss because we look at the incarnation and when Jesus Christ came and put on flesh, well, he didn't come as a tree, right? He came as a man. And so it's easy for us to look at that and kind of lose sight of the rest of creation as a part of God's plan. But what Jesus points us to and what Paul tells us is that all of creation is groaning for restoration. That the gospel that we, that we uh, preach each week here, that we're taking into our lives, that we are living in, is a gospel that is good news for us, for humanity, and it is also good news for every part of creation. That's true. And as God cares for creation, the invitation is that we would care for, not even the invitation, the command is that we would also care for creation. We see it even in this passage, in the first verse that we read. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Well, the second verse. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And in the midst of the flood, God was interested not only in saving Noah, but also in saving the animals, which tells us that God had mercy on them, God cared for them, God loves all of his creation. We see that just a little bit later in chapter 9 here. God says, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. We're like, okay, that makes sense. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the earth, it is for, out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. God's telling us that the promises that he made are not only for humans, but the promise here that he made to Noah is also for the animals. 
Why? It's because God cares about everything that he has created. And in seeing that here in this passage, it's only echoing what we already know from earlier in Genesis. That's evident way back in Genesis 1 and 2. That when God, each day when God creates, right, he stands back and he says, it's good. What he's saying is every facet of creation, God is speaking blessing over it. He's honoring it. He's taking joy and he's delighting in each piece of it. And God was doing that before humanity was ever created. That God cares for, he delights in every single aspect of his creation. It's good. And he gave humanity the call to exercise dominion or stewardship over creation. That was our original mandate, to be fruitful and to multiply, to exercise dominion over creation. And when we hear the word, guys, when we hear the word dominion, for us, it automatically has a negative connotation, doesn't it? That when we hear the word dominion, what we think of is abuse. We think of people misusing their power to destroy something that is good. That's not God's intention when he gives man dominion over the earth because he gives it to him before sin has ever entered the picture. It's a totally different picture of, of, uh, it's of stewardship. That we would take this beautiful thing that God has made and that we would pull out all of its potentialities, that we would develop it, that we would help it to flourish. That's the call that we were originally given. The problem is not with the call, the problem is with our sin and the way that we've practiced it. A week or two ago, uh, some, of, some people here on our service committee, they, uh, they serve lunch to the teachers and the, the support staff at Stratford High School. And one of the things that stood out to me is, is the things that the teachers and the support staff at the school had to say about Dr. Pratt, their principal. Everyone was so pumped up about him. One of the women I was talking to said that when she's having a bad day, she's sitting in her office and it has a window and the principal will come out and will just like jump in front of the window just to cheer her up. And what she was saying is that, that what she saw is that this man was using the dominion that he has been given over this school, the lives of his teachers and students, and that he's using it, to, he's stewarding it for good. He's helping them flourish. That, that kind of picture of power used for good is, is what we are called to, that we would steward and care for God's creation because God cares for it and loves it. That same that same mandate that was given to Adam and Eve was given in a truncated form here to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fear the earth. It's just the first part of that original mandate, but the, the whole thing is kind of like a freight train. We just read the first part, but the whole thing is relevant here. The mandate that was given to Adam and Eve is given to, is given to Noah and is given to us. That we would use all of our creative power to steward and care for, to draw out the potentialities of God's creation to help this world flourish. The caring for God's creation is a moral endeavor. There's a moral imperative there for us even. It's not primarily political, it's theological. Okay, so how do we do that? I don't know. Let me just acknowledge that. There are all kinds of ways and programs and things that we can think about that. How do we actually go about caring for God's creation? It's a very important question. And what I want to propose to you this morning is not my manifesto of how we do that, but is a change in the way that we think that I think will be helpful for us as we lean into how we steward God's creation. 
And the change I want to propose is a change of language for us. That in the way that we think, maybe even in the way that we speak, uh, that we would replace the word nature with the word creation. That we would replace the word environment with the word creation. Not in like a weird way, okay, but like in the way that we think and talk and, and interact with each other and with our world. Because, because what, the, what the word nature does is it severs the connection between this whole world and the God who created it. It makes it feel like it's this thing that we can do anything we want with. That's not true. It doesn't belong to us. We're stewards under a king. And all of this belongs to him. It points us to him. So this is not some sterile environment in which we find ourselves. This is all God's creation. It's like uh, there are some people at my house who have recently become fairly picky with our food. I'll I'll let you guess who they might be. Um, One of them likes to say when the food is put in in front of this person, ew, that's gross. Like you haven't even tried it. How do you know? What we have been reminding these people in our home is that uh, someone made this food. There is a person that stands behind it. And that that should influence the way that you interact with it. Don't say ooh, okay? Another word would be thank you. Because it didn't just, <laughs> amen. Because that food didn't just come from nowhere. Someone invested time and care to make it because that person cares for you. Same thing with creation. There is a God who stands behind it. And that as our minds and our hearts start to wrap around that fact, would that change the way that we live and invite us in also to caring for creation? We're living under that same charge as Adam and Eve, the same charge as Noah, that we would steward this world with all of the creativity that God has given us and that we would help it to flourish. We've got to acknowledge that this charge given to Noah uh, is, is given under the shadow of sin. When it was given to Adam and Eve, that wasn't true. But a lot has happened since Adam and Eve and Noah, right? A lot happened in that time. Look at the charge that God gives Noah in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Really? People haven't suddenly become more moral. In fact, God acknowledges the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So if you're Noah, you've got to think, okay, now I'm supposed to go out, multiply and fill the earth, but I know people are the same. Does that mean that we're going to be wiped out again? That's a scary thing. It makes me think of the rose pepper sign in the last week. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, If they shenaned once, you better believe they will shenan again. Okay? But that's true about people. It was true in Noah's day. It's true now. If we sin, we better believe we're going to sin again. That's just who we are. And guys, I mean, that, that, that reality uh, can be so defeating for us in the face of the call that we have been given, can't it? 
Lord, to go out and care for creation? Look at what has already happened. God, to carry your image out into the world, to steward it and bring it into every corner of creation. Do you know how broken the world is? It can feel like a, like a wearisome task to know that everything we build is going to get torn down. The sandcastle at the beach. And there's, there's a, what happens so easily to us when we encounter that, that challenge out in the world, the challenge of embracing this calling that God has put on our lives, is that what we so naturally say is, here we go again. Like, have you ever said that in a fight to someone you're fighting with? Here you go again. I, don't, I would not recommend it, right? That's never going to go well. You've probably learned not to say it out loud, but even if you don't say it out loud, do you ever say that in your heart? Here we go again. And when we say that, when we think that, when we live out of here we go again, what it does is it strangles any opportunity for the, for the, for the gospel to be at work in that situation. I, I shouldn't say that because the gospel is far more powerful than our work against it. Praise God. But what we are doing is shutting down our ability to actively engage with what God is doing in that situation. And there are biological reasons we respond like that. That's like true about our brains, that when we have encountered or experienced trauma in our past, that it, it I hate using robot terms for people, it embeds, uh, it creates a neural network in our brains that we end up going back to when situations that are similar happen again. That we, are, that we are biologically set up to respond physically in our bodies with the, here we go again. And guys, this, God in this passage offers us something so much better. And we see it in the word covenant. This word that is repeated seven times in this passage, which is a significant number in scripture, right? I don't know exactly how that fits into this passage, but it, it, seven times, that's a lot of times. Because God is trying to get something across. That's why this last paragraph is so dang repetitive. What God is telling us over and over and over and over again is I am the kind of God who makes covenants with his people. So what is a covenant? Okay, a covenant is a relational contract is the best way to put it. And what is often true about a covenant is that a covenant goes from a greater party to a lesser party. A covenant goes from a conquering king to the king and the kingdom he has conquered. That's the kind of the context of covenant in the ancient Near East. Our God is a covenant-making God. And what that shows us is there is so much grace even in the fact that God would come to us and make promises at all. He doesn't have to do that. But he chooses to. To come and of his own volition to make promises to his people. And you realize this, this, this covenant, this Noahic covenant that we see here, uh, there are no stipulations placed on the opposite party. None. God just says, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to flood the earth again and destroy it through a flood. I'm not. Think of what a gift that was to Noah. That when God gives him this covenant, he says, look, I'm going to give you a sign and a seal to help you remember it. And it's almost like God is talking to Noah. He's telling him about this covenant he's making. And then he says, look up. You see that rainbow? This is going to help you remember my promises to you that I am not going to destroy all the earth through a flood again. So that when you go out and you're doing this business of, of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with my image, that you can do that in the confidence that I am not going to destroy the earth through a flood again. 
And when you, have seen, when you have seen rain come down into clouds, which you can imagine how triggering that would have been for Noah, when you see that happening and afterwards you see a rainbow, you can know I am not going to flood the earth again. You can have confidence in my commitment to care for my creation. And it's unilateral. It's like parents taking their kids to Disneyland. It's an act of pure and extravagant grace, right? <laughs> Very costly. And, and even though the parents know that there will be meltdowns there, right? That there are going to be all kinds of fits in the line for Space Mountain. I'm going to do it anyway because I love you. That's what God is doing here. He's saying as a unilateral act of my grace, even though I know the thoughts and intentions of your heart are evil from your youth, I'm going to make this promise to you because of my great love for you. And I'm going to give you this sign, this seal, this rainbow in the clouds, and then he calls it my bow, which, which should, uh, when we think about the rest of Scripture, that bow is referred to as the bow of God's wrath, and God has hung it up. That wrath is not coming again through a flood. Oh, what a mercy. And yet, what we do know in Scripture is that there will be a day when that, when that bow, in a sense, comes back down. When because of, God's love, because of God's love for his creation, there will be a day when, when he judges the world and he remakes creation. Peter talks about this in one of his letters. He says there's going to be a day where the world is destroyed by fire, which is not a flood. I'm sorry, he does not say destroyed, he says consumed, and that distinction is very important. Because the world itself is not destroyed. Often throughout Scripture, the, the idea of fire, fire is purifying. But that is what God is going to do when he brings judgment at the end of time on the earth is he's, he's purifying his creation. He's not destroying it, but he is finally remaking it. This creation that is crying out for restoration, God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to remake it. And it will be unlike the restoration that Noah experienced because all of the sin will finally be separated out, will be pushed outside of this remade world, and it will finally get to become what it was created to be in the first place. And yet, when we stand and we, and we think about that judgment, uh, apart from Jesus, that is terrifying to us, isn't it? To know that we will stand before the God who has created everything and that we will give an account for how we have stewarded that creation how we have stewarded ourselves, how we have loved and cared for or not loved and cared for the people around us. And, and what this passage tells us and what is true a, a, across the scriptures is the testimony that if we were to stand before God with our own righteousness, that we would be condemned. That we would be cast out of this renewed creation that God has made and will make. But there is a time that God took down that bow from the sky in between what happened with Noah and what's going to happen at the end of time. And he took it down and he poured that wrath. The justice of his bow came out on his son. That it was poured out over Jesus Christ. And because of that, what that means is that we can have the confidence that our sins have been thrown as far as the east is from the west and that when we stand before God in judgment, that, that we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear in the terms of there is no punishment for us to fear. There is the holiness of God, the wonder of God, the amazement of God that we will all have to stand in front of. And there are ways that that will undo us that are very beautiful because of what Jesus has done for us. That's our confidence. Friends, that's the new covenant. Jesus says this is the new covenant that has been made in my blood. 
do this in remembrance of me. That's what we do when we, when we take communion here is we remember that new covenant that has been given to us. A covenant that is so much bigger, so much better, so much fuller than the covenant that was given to Noah, that Noah's covenant was just a foretaste of it. The confidence that we will stand before God in judgment and there is no, and there is no judgment for us because all that punishment has been taken. What that does, friends, is that frees us now to engage in this calling that God has given us in a totally different way. It bears us up. It, it, it strengthens us in the face of the suffering and the sin of the tearing down that we see in the world around us. It's what allows us to move from here we, here we go again to here we go. That it's God's covenant that allows us to move from here we go again to here we go. Let me explain what I mean by that. that what God has promised us through the, through the new covenant is that there is no more punishment for us. That what is true about our relationship with God is that God is always treating us as his beloved children. And yes, there may be discipline that comes into our lives, but that is never because God is against us. It is only and ever because our God is for us. That he is only and ever doing good to us, pouring out his love over us. And that confidence then allows us to enter situations that are full of pain and struggle. And rather than pulling back our past and bringing that into the forward and writing the story of a here we go again, we're able to stand, bef- to, to stand and say, Lord, what are you doing here? Lord, what is the story that you in your covenant love are writing in and through me? There's a hymn I think that captures this so well. It's the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. One of, the, one of the verses is, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. Okay, here's the background to that hymn. The guy who wrote it, is, he, I don't know, he was alive in the 1800s. His name is George Matheson. George went blind pretty early in his life. When he was a young man, he was in the process of going blind, but he didn't know if it was going to be permanent, how lasting it would be, and he was engaged. And when the doctor came back and told him, hey, this blindness is permanent, his fiancée left him and said, I cannot be married to a blind man for the rest of my life. And so his sister became his caretaker. She learned Greek and Hebrew, and they, like, did ministry together. It's a beautiful story. And then one day, his sister got married. Here we go again. But on the evening of his sister's wedding, uh, he wrote this hymn. I trace the rainbow through the rain. I know the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. That in this man's life, there was a willingness not to say, oh, here we go again, but Lord, here we go. What do you have for me? And this song that we sing is a product of that. Lord, here we go. In the face of the, the, the fear and the anger of all of the shame and the trauma of my past, Lord, you are writing a different and a better story. You have said that we are, he's told us that we are new creations. And what is consistently happening is that what he's doing in our lives is he's working that new creation to the surface. And we get to participate with that as we take his image out into all the corners of the earth through the work that he's given us, through the relationships that he's given us, and say, Lord, not, not a here we go again, but Lord, here we go.
I just want to encourage you guys. I love hearing stories about the ways that Jesus is doing that in and through you all the time. One of the things that comes to mind for me uh, recently is I was at a show on Friday night for Ellie Turner, a woman in our congregation. Yes. Ellie was performing at Station Inn. And guys, she rocked it. And as an artist, uh, she got up there and she, she shared these new songs that she has written with the world. And rather than saying, here we go again, she said, here we go. Lord, take these gifts that I have and use them. And she stewarded them in such a beautiful way. Here we go. And what I will tell you is also true about Ellie, because uh, I've had conversations with her about this, is that she is taking that with her into all of her relationships in that same world as well. That there are people who have experienced the love of Jesus and who know the name of Jesus and experience the love and the name of Jesus being spoken by someone who sees how all of this fits together in the midst of her own questions. That she has said to Jesus, here we go. Oh, and you guys do that so well. And so I just want to encourage you, let's keep doing it. Jesus, he writes better stories for us than we can write for ourselves. Here we go. Let me pray. Oh. Father, we thank you for your covenant love. Lord, that you would come to us uh, in the middle of our sin, knowing all of it, and that you would make promises to us, promises that you, that you keep on our behalf, even when we are incapable of keeping, uh, keeping them. Jesus, thank you. We praise you for your covenant love and ask, Jesus, that you would continue to write in us, that you would continue to work to the surface uh, the reality that we are new creations. Jesus, would you, would you change us? Would you move in our hearts uh, and would you enliven us as we step into the callings you have for us this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.